I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is the only institution in America, chartered by Congress, to disseminate information about the U.S. Constitution on a nonpartisan basis in order to increase awareness and understanding of the Constitution among the American people. And today we look at Crew versus Trump, a lawsuit about President Trump's alleged violation of the Foreign Emoluments Clause of the Constitution, as well as the Domestic Emoluments Clause of the Constitution through the Trump Hotel and other enterprises. Uh, recently, the Southern District of New York heard oral arguments on the case, raising important questions about the scope of the Emoluments Clause, whether or not it applies to the president, and whether or not courts can examine it in the first place. Joining us to discuss these important questions and more are two important constitutional scholars who have written extensively on the Crew case. Josh Blackman is Associate Professor of Law at the South Texas College of Law in Houston. He filed an amicus brief in the Crew and Trump lawsuit on behalf of another law professor, Seth Barrett Tillman, who wrote about the Foreign Emoluments Clause on the Interactive Constitution. And Jed Sugarman is professor of law at Fordham Law School. He filed an amicus brief in the Crew and Emoluments Clause litigation against President Trump, along with a team of historians. Josh, Jed, thank you so much for joining. Thanks for having me. Let's jump right into the central substantive question in the case. Does the Foreign Emolument Clause even apply to the president? Uh, Josh, there's a fascinating uh, dispute about that. Just recently, the Department of Justice changed its opinion about whether or not the president is subject to the Foreign Emoluments Clause. Tell us about the controversy, what happened at the oral arguments, and whether you believe the Foreign Emoluments Clause applies to the president. Well, it's a pleasure to be back, Jeff. The Foreign Emoluments Clause provides that no person holding any office of profit or trust under the United States shall, without the consent of the Congress, accept of any present emolument office or title of any kind, whatever, from any king, prince, or foreign state. Um, the key language there is person holding any office of profit or trust under the United States, and whether this includes the president. Um, I'm very proud to represent uh, Seth Barrett Tillman, who's a law professor in Ireland, and he's one of the very few people to actually study this clause before 2016. He and Zephyr Tichat contributed to your uh, online uh, encyclopedia of the Constitution. Um, the argument that uh, Seth has been making for years is that this language, office under the United States, refers to appointed positions and not elected positions. And um, in 2009, there was an Office of Legal Counsel opinion which said that the Foreign Emoluments Clause surely applies to the president. There wasn't much analysis there, didn't look at some historical evidence we've submitted. But breaking news, just maybe a couple hours ago, the Justice Department submitted a letter to the court saying, quote, the government has not conceded that the president is subject to the Foreign Emoluments Clause. So this is now very much a live issue. It's an issue that's disputed between the parties, and it's one which we've submitted quite a bit of historical evidence from George Washington to Thomas Jefferson to James Madison to Alexander Hamilton concerning whether the Foreign Emoluments Clause applies to the president. And in light of our study of this evidence, uh, our conclusion is the answer is no, it does not. Uh, thanks so much for that. Jed, you disagree. Initially, a team of historians questioned uh, Professor Tillman's claim that Hamilton excluded the president from his list of 
uh, those bound by the Foreign Emoluments Clause, although later conceded that the subsequent letter wasn't signed by Hamilton and therefore Hamilton appeared to exclude the president. But tell us about the controversy and why you believe that the Emoluments Clause does apply to the president. Great. Thanks for having us on to discuss this issue. It's really important, and uh, I hope this is uh, helpful for everyone listening um, to get into these details. So I think that taking a step back for the big picture, um, it's still, it's always been unclear to me what theory of constitutional interpretation Professor Blackman and Professor Tillman are subscribing to, because ultimately this argument about what the text appears to say to in terms of its plain meaning about offices under the United States, you know, for, for generations it's been understood to be a reference to federal offices. Um, and so uh, there is some question based on British practice, uh, the, Professor Tillman's been pointing out to English practices at the time, um, but America definitely was not the same design of a government that the English were. This, so the reference was an office under the crown refers to appointed offices because the, the crown was also not elected. So when we try and think about what Americans were doing in a very different design of government that was not a monarchy, I guess the question is this esoteric kind of argument um, that was hidden in this text um, it's not the same. It doesn't seem to me that there's a single piece of evidence um, that directly answers this question from any contemporary document. There is no single, there's no document that I've seen uh, Professor Blackman or Professor Tillman point to uh, that says the founders thought that the Foreign Emoluments Clause does not apply to the president. To the contrary, there are a whole bunch of other textual arguments to make sense of various places of the Constitution. Um, in each place, it makes far more sense that the reference to offices under the United States would refer to the president. And I, don't, I can't point to a single example in the Constitution where, the, where Professor Tillman's interpretation would make more sense. Uh, moreover, in both in the, in the uh, Constitutional Convention and in the ratification debates, there was context that explained or would, would, would offer more support for why this clause would apply to the president. Okay, Josh, one more beat on this important question. Uh, in a previous podcast on the Emoluments Clause, our debaters noted that uh, although Hamilton may have excluded the president, uh, presidents since Jackson have assumed that the Emoluments Clause does apply, and indeed President Obama's uh, Office of Legal Counsel issued an opinion saying that he could accept the Nobel Peace Prize on the grounds that the Nobel Committee wasn't a government. Uh, what's the relevance of that post-enactment history? And, and if you were going to try to convince our listeners broadly why the clause shouldn't apply, what would the central arguments be? Oh, I'd be happy to. So we have this text, office under the United States, and it's a phrase that people don't give much thought to, but it was a phrase that was fairly well known back at the time of the founding. And I want to walk you through historical evidence we have. For example, President Washington received gifts from the French. President Jefferson received gifts from Russia and from uh, uh, Indian tribes with Lewis and Clark's expedition. President Madison received pistols from a South American revolutionary. In each case, these founders who were essential to our American experience never asked for consent to accept these foreign gifts. We have this role from Alexander Hamilton. The Senate asked him to provide a list of all people who hold civil office under the United States. He didn't list the president or the vice president or any of the members of Congress. We have another statute enacted by the first Congress that, that, that tries to disbar people from holding certain types of offices. But we know that Congress can't add qualifications to elected positions. So if we take the other uh, argument, Congress, the first Congress, enacted an unconstitutional statute. Then we go to Jackson, 
And I want you to actually look at what Jackson said. He never asked for consent to keep these foreign gifts. He just disposed them to Congress. Tyler, Van Buren, and Lincoln did the same. We don't have until President Harrison, almost 100 years later, uh, uh, after the founding, who actually asked for Congress to consent to the acceptance of a gift. So we don't doubt that there are these two streams of authority, right? There's a stream of authority that the language only applies to appointed positions. And then there's the other one, which says that the text of the Constitution, uh, office of, office under, makes no difference, right? Um, There's another position. Uh, We simply say there's far more evidence on our side going all the way back to the founding uh, than there is on the other side. And when looking at this question, and text doesn't always give the full answer, historical practice is very relevant. And the Supreme Court has looked especially to the practices of the first Congress and to President Washington, who set so many of our early decisions. And if you look at this evidence, there's a body, which is why I think the government has shifted its position. They are now backing off the Nobel Prize OLSI opinion, and I suspect eventually that might be withdrawn. Uh, But for now, um, uh, the the debate is live, and I'm grateful to have this forum with you and uh, Professor Sugarman to debate it. Great. Jed, your response, uh, uh, Josh says, uh, the historical practice uh, should trump the text, and also tell our listeners, uh, have any courts uh, applied the emoluments clause to the president before? Great. So let me uh, let me take this uh, opportunity to just go um, through a couple of these steps, um, because I think that there's actually quite a bit of historical evidence that, that goes the opposite way. Um, and again, there's no direct evidence that supports this um, this unusual position that's that's being taken. So let me first start with the uh the the ratification debates themselves. So two of the two of the famous founding fathers, George Mason and Edmund Randolph. Edmund Randolph was the first attorney general of the United States. They both debated in Virginia about the Foreign Emoluments Clause and they both talked about what would happen if the president were to be taking emoluments, foreign emoluments. And and Edmund Randolph's answer was that, well, the president would be in violation of the clause and should be impeached. So not only is, is this is a sort of a two-step, um, taking it for granted that the president would be uh, in violation of the clause and, and moreover could be subject to impeachment. That's very strong evidence, and no one objects um, in the Virginia ratifying convention about that assumption. Second of all, you know, a lot's been uh, made of the Hamilton document, but keep in mind this Hamilton document, was Congress, the Senate was not asking Hamilton uh, who is covered by the Foreign Emoluments Clause? Uh, in fact, it's not even a, directly about the language "office under the United States." It's it's the separate. It's this different language. It's about um, asking him who are the the salaries and emoluments of civil offices under the United States. And this is really important because I think that language, that different language from the Foreign Emoluments Clause, highlights what was probably going on here. So keep in mind that this Senate request was in uh, 1792, and Hamilton addresses it in 1793. That's just as, uh, as a new administration, Washington wins re-election. So what's happening there? There's an explicit clause in the Constitution, Article 1, Section 6, Clause 2, that says that members of Congress cannot be appointed to any new civil office which had been created during their term or accept an office's larger salary that had been increased during their term. So in context, what's happening is the Senate has a very practical question to Hamilton. We are about to go through a wave of appointments or a set of new appointments, and we've also had a Congress that's created offices. What is going to happen in this new administration if we take some of, if we draw, if if President Washington chooses some of those members of Congress to either take on those new positions or take on salary raises? 
this is a this was a question that was only relevant to appoint uh, to appointments. So as a practical matter, it makes sense that Hamilton would go about making a list of um, appointed officers because that was re- that's what was relevant, and it would be irrelevant to add the president and vice president um, to that uh, that request about different um, textual question. And one more point, um, you know, the, the background about these gifts that were received by Washington and Jefferson, let me just give you one example of the problems I have with this interpretation. Um, Washington does receive a gift from, not from the French, but receives a gift from Lafayette. And here's what Lafayette's letter to Washington said. He said, this, this, he gave him a key to the Bastille, and he said to Washington, this key is a tribute which I owe as a son to my adoptive father, as an aide-de-camp to my general, and as a missionary of liberty to its patriarch. And Thomas Paine also described this gift as a personal present. So it's, I think it's not quite fair to describe this, for example. I mean, I think they put a lot of eggs in this particular basket. Um, and it's, it seems from context that Washington, in good faith, may have understood this gift to be a personal gift. Um, I think it's, you know, the, 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 the examples they give of gifts seem so exceptional that they almost prove the rule that presidents did not cross the line of, of serious emoluments, um, even if there were some kind of token or symbolic gifts that they may have accepted um, in, in very minor and non and, and uh, not in ways that drew a lot of public attention or, or concerns about corruption. Thanks so much for that, Josh. I'm, I'm sure you have much more to say on this, and, and readers and listeners can check out the latest edition of your blog for a description of how the Department of Justice has shifted its position on the case. So a brief response on the substantive point, and then can you introduce the next important question, which is the meaning of emoluments at the oral argument? Judge Daniels seemed to define emoluments as a form of uh corruption. And uh, you and Seth Tillman have a different answer. So tell us about how you think emoluments should be defined and how the judge uh, seemed to be defining it. I'd be happy to. Um, And in fact, if you want to talk about Lafayette, we actually have a footnote in our latest brief. Uh, The gift from uh, Lafayette was actually discussed in French diplomatic cables. Um, At least the French understood it in the sense of a government official. Uh, this doesn't explain the gift from Ambassador Ternant, who was the French ambassador, who gave Washington this ornate frame with a full life-size print of King Louis XVI. It doesn't explain the gift from the Russians to Jefferson. It doesn't explain the gift from Indian tribes to Jefferson. He never had any of these people. Same for Madison, the revolutionaries. But let's move on uh, as, I, as I take my humble host's cue. The second major question is, what is the meaning of an emolument? And this is a phrase that we just don't use anymore. We just don't use this phrase, emolument. And there are two possible interpretations of this phrase, one advanced by the plaintiffs and one advanced by the defendants. The plaintiffs have defined the word emolument to mean anything of value. So whether it's a, 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 you know, a, uh, uh, people giving money for a state hotel, or perhaps the profits derived from a copyright given by the Chinese government, or people paying a restaurant tab. If there's any sort of thing of value from a foreign government, according to the plaintiff, that is an emolument and will be prohibited by the Foreign Emoluments Clause. It would also be prohibited by what they call the Domestic Emoluments Clause, what I call the Presidential Emoluments Clause, which bars the president from receiving these emoluments from the states. The other interpretation of the phrase emolument, this is advanced by the defendants and also advanced by uh, the amicus brief I filed with Professor Tillman, 
is it refers to some sort of compensation derived from performance of duties in an office that is merely paying someone's money for some extraneous uh, hotel service is not an emolument that is connected to the office. And here we actually have a fairly, um, uh, I think, healthy historical debate over how to understand this phrase emoluments. On the one side, Professor Sugarman's colleague, uh, John McKyle, who teaches at Georgetown, has surveyed a number of founding era dictionaries and uh, Blackstone's commentaries and a number of other sources from that era to try to uh, determine how the phrase emoluments is used. And he said it more often than not, these dictionaries point to the broader definition that means anything of value. Um, on the other side, we have a paper forthcoming in the South Texas Law Review, my own law review. We had a symposium on the emoluments clauses. And this employs what's called corpus linguistics, which is this cool new thing in uh, uh, historical research, where rather than looking at dictionaries, you look at uh, thousands and thousands of documents, and you try to figure out how a word is used. And there's a problem with dictionaries that you may not think of, but most of them are plagiarists, right? Most of the time, one dictionary would copy from another from another. So it's not surprising they often had similar definitions. But corpus linguistics looks at a far broader set. And according to this corpus linguistics analysis, the more common usage was the narrow kind, the phrase that an emolument refers to some sort of compensation derived from a specific office. Um, uh, I think Professor Sugarman will, will agree the, 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 the court didn't seem very much interested in either a historical survey of dictionaries or a corpus linguistics analysis. His um, understanding was the word compensation, which he derived from the, I guess, the structure of the clause itself. And uh, the, this word compensation is narrower than the plaintiff's definition, anything of value, but it's broader than the defendant's definition, which means compensation from some sort of job, uh, position, services rendered for, for, for an office. Um, so I think the, the court's going to have its uh, task cut out for it. And, and um, I, I can see the emoluments question, frankly, going either way on this on this issue. Great. So, Jed, Josh has offered us three uh, definitions uh, of emolument. Uh, one is anything of value. Uh, the second is uh, c compensation uh, for office. And, and then the intermediate one, which Judge Daniels adopted, is uh, compensation uh, without limitations. Which do you think is the right definition? And why do you think that the payments that the Trump hotels uh, received from foreign governments count as emoluments within the meaning of the clause. Great. Yeah, I also thought Professor Blackman's summary was quite uh, quite clear and uh, helpful. So, uh, and and I agree with his assessment. Um, and and so let me say a couple of things. First of all, I think it's really helpful to that Professor Blackman went and and um, emphasized that there's also this domestic emoluments clause because in our last. Uh, uh, conversation we were talking about the foreign emoluments clause. It's also re really important to see how they relate to each other. Just on that last question about whether the foreign emoluments clause applies to the president, it would be very, it would be odd if the framers wrote a presidential emoluments clause to prohibit federal and state emoluments uh, specifically from the president, but then to write an emoluments clause about a greater concern about foreign influence and to apply it to everyone but the president. Um, it seems to be a mismatch that I can't make sense of. Um, and I don't think a, an average observer or original public meaning would have made sense of that either. But on this question about um, the definition of emoluments, yet my, our, the co-author on the brief, uh, John McKyle, did just an amazing uh, uh, in-depth research of every general use and legal dictionary uh, from the 17th century up, to the found, up through the founding era. And what he found was that every general use dictionary 
used some form of a broad definition of emolument relating to advantage, gain, benefit, or profit so that it would apply to uh, private market transactions. Um, and 92% of those dictionaries made absolutely no reference to office or employment. And let me say more because I've, I've been uh, digging through all of these papers and online um, searches for the references to the word emolument from the founders. And what's interesting is that many of the founders, when they wanted to um, have this more narrow uh, understanding of the word emolument, they had a phrase uh, that they could use that was somewhat closer to the Department of Justice's narrow definition of emolument. They used the phrase, uh, and I quote, emoluments of office. Washington used that phrase. Jefferson used that phrase. Madison used that phrase in the Federalist Papers. Um, so when, if they wanted to to describe this clause, or if they wanted to confine this clause narrowly in the way the DOJ did, uh, the DOJ is arguing, they could have used this phrase, but they didn't. Um, and so it's, I think the dictionaries are overwhelmingly clear about this question. Emoluments did have this broad um, definition. Um, let me say something else about this paper. Um, I've, I've gone through and I was impressed by this paper um, uh, by, by Phillips and White um, that Professor Blackman just referred to, but it actually is really powerfully in, uh, on the side of the plaintiffs and crew, uh, and I'll explain why. Um, in detail, they went through three different databases, and, and let me just explain that one of the databases was about the general use of the general public. And what they found, and the authors described this as how ordinary folk, I'm quoting here, how, how did ordinary folk um, understand the word emolument? And they find that two-thirds of the references of these ordinary folk uses um, of the word emolument were of this broad context that would apply to President Trump and his businesses. Um, and so if, if the Constitution is a public document, and if it's law based upon ratification by the public, this is the theory of Constitution uh, of originalism that I think is more persuasive, the original public meaning, then I would turn to what uh, voters or the general public would understand the Constitution to mean. But moreover, the founders um, and their documents, they, they show that they um, also use this broad meaning uh, very often. So here's, let me bring this back to the text. The Foreign Emoluments Clause says that it applies to emoluments, office, or titles, quote, of any kind, whatever. It's not that common that in the Constitution the framers tell us how to read a text, broadly or narrowly. But they say explicitly here, of any kind, whatever. So even if one takes arguendo that there was a primary meaning that was narrow but a secondary meaning that was broad, the framers have told us to take the broad meaning. And I think that's um, just basic textual uh, analysis uh, of how the DOJ should be, uh, of, of how the court should describe it. But, the, but Judge Daniel's reference to compensation um, was really close to what Crew and the plaintiffs were arguing, because it's compensation not only for an office, but that same uh, compensation would also apply to compensation for hotel rooms, compensation for restaurant meals. Um, compensation is, 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 so, is broad enough to capture the main arguments of what the plaintiffs are arguing about. Thanks so much for that. Josh, you gave a great uh, summary of the various possible constructions of emoluments. Uh, which one do you think is correct, and why do you believe that any payment that the Trump's hotels may have received do not qualify as emoluments? Right. So, I mean, our position more broadly is the foreign emoluments clause doesn't apply to the president. However, the domestic emoluments clause or the presidential emoluments clause does. So to the extent that the president is receiving emoluments from the state government, um, that, I think, could run afoul of the Constitution. Um, the reason why we take a more um, narrow conception of the foreign, I'm sorry, the word emolument, uh, goes back again to George Washington. 
Um, we always always go back to our first president. And back in the early 1790s, when the federal capital was being built, there was actually a auction of lands. This was a public auction advertised months in advance that was available to anyone to watch. And it was, it was attended by a number of people. And President Washington did and purchased a number of plots of land at this auction. Um, if the word emoluments refers to anything of value, then President Washington received illegal things of value from the federal government, uh, which violate the Constitution. I usually start my constitutional analysis, call it what you will, with if George Washington is doing something in plain view of the entire U.S. government um, in the very early days, there's good evidence that he's not breaking the law. But it's not only Washington. We have a decision called Hoyt from 1850 that defines what emoluments to embrace, quote, every species of compensation or pecuniary profit derived from the discharge of the duties of the office. So this is a pretty obscure word emolument, but I think we have a lot of history and text going back quite far. Um, uh, but but I, I make this point. I, I can see the court going either way on the phrase emolument. I think the, the greater body of evidence is on the defendant's side, but I can see the court adopting either meaning. Um, which is, I think, all the more reason why the, the primary question of whether the president's bound um, uh, is critical. Uh, 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 I think that that will probably decide the, the, the more important question for the, uh, for the courts. Great. So in this fascinating debate so far, we've heard uh, a question of whether or not the clause applies to the president. We've heard a debate about the meanings of emoluments. And then we've uh, heard uh, Josh just say that he thinks that the case may be decided on the question of standing. Jed, tell us what the dispute about standing is and why you believe that challengers do have standing to challenge uh, President Trump's uh, hotels. Sure. So uh, one thing to keep in mind is that there are actually three separate cases with four different types of standing claims. Um, So just to be as concise as I can, one of them is is by the nonprofit crew. Um, Their argument is that as a nonprofit, uh, this uh, corruption um, it does an injury to them by by uh, increasing the amount of work they have to do. Um, I, I think the stronger argument is their co-plaintiffs, um, because they I, I think it was uh, very helpful that they were able to add uh, business competitors to the Trump hotels and restaurants, um, an event planner who is directly in competition for um, foreign government events in Washington, D.C. on Embassy Row, um, an association of restaurants that directly competes um, with with the Trump businesses. And then there are two other pending cases, uh, um, the one by uh, the uh, the, uh, uh, attorneys general of D.C. and Maryland. I think that's a a particularly strong standing claim because the Supreme Court has recognized that the states have a special solicitude when it comes to standing law. This is from Massachusetts versus EPA and and other cases in that line. Um, And then finally, there are members of Congress, 200 uh, members of Congress, whose claim I think is is pretty strong, which is that they can't exercise their function under the Constitution unless the president discloses uh, presence and emoluments. They can't weigh in one way or the other. So they're, they're unable to exercise their fiduciary duty um, as long as President Trump is concealing um, and not revealing uh, these these uh, these gifts, um, I think the, to focus on the crew case, I, I think ultimately uh, the standing will uh, be upheld because the uh, the competitor there is a very broad doctrine of standing um, for competitors who were injured, um, and uh, that was the main topic of of the uh, of the oral arguments. 
um, and uh, there's a lot of case law supporting it. It doesn't have to be in the zone of interest. Here's something that's very important. The injury does not have to be in the zone of of interest of the structural constitutional provision to give someone standing. Um, It seemed like there was some debate or or confusion about that point, but I thought the crew uh, lawyers did an excellent job of, uh, of, of clarifying their standing claim. Thanks so much. Josh, your views on standing, you might begin by focusing on the question of the standing of the competitors, but more broadly, why do you think that there's no standing to challenge in this case? Well, I think the um, the first question of standing concerns crew, and the argument of crew is that they have standing because they've decided to divert resources and investigate Trump's business activities. Um, I've called this before a self-inflicted injury. Um, there's some case law which suggests that diversion of resources can give rise to standing, uh, but those Supreme Court cases arose in a very specific context of uh, housing discrimination. It is a statute that provides a discrete injury that is discrimination. Here they're saying the injury is diverting resources. Judge Daniels did not seem much interested in that. Uh, the better argument concerns the competitors, the, uh, the hotel owner, the restaurant owner, the, uh, this, this event planner. Um, there's an argument that Seth and I have raised that so far the plaintiffs haven't really addressed. Um, Mr. Good, they've claimed, is the owner of several hotels in Manhattan. Um, if you know anything about corporate law, no one owns a hotel in Manhattan by himself. Uh, they're owned by entities, LLC, corporation, et cetera. And there are plenty of stories discussing in the media that Good is a co-owner with another uh, entrepreneur. Um, under pretty basic fiduciary law, Unless you're authorized by the corporation to bring the suit, a single shareholder can't do it. And there's been no pleadings anywhere suggesting that Mr. Good is authorized to bring these complaints. Um, now, Judge Daniels might not be interested in this, but I suspect going upstairs they will. And this is a thing that can kill a case on appeal. So um, during arguments, plaintiffs said Mr. Good owns the hotels. Um, that may be a factually correct statement, but I don't think it is. Um, so I think even if the court finds competitors standing here, they may have some problems upstairs. Um, the other cases, which we can talk about briefly, one is in the District of Columbia. It was brought by 200-some-odd members of Congress, and they've argued that they have a, 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 an interest in stopping the president from violating the Constitution. Now, of course, if the Democrats and the, and the, and the, the Democrats take the House and the Senate in two years, they're going to vote to impeach him, and they'll vote to deny his chief of the emolument. So I think this entire case is not justiciable. Um, uh, another case, a third one, is brought in the District of Maryland, brought by the Maryland and D.C. Attorneys General, and they're arguing that they have state standing, what's called uh, state sovereignty. Um, I don't know how far the court will stretch the, the doctrine of states having standing. I actually haven't studied this one as closely. They have the congressional question. Um, uh, but more, more likely than not, I think at least one of these plaintiffs would probably be found to have standing. I think the court will eventually reach the merits, but uh, I think a couple of them may have some problems along the way. Thanks so much for that. Well, much more to say about this fascinating case, but it's time for uh, closing arguments. Uh, Jed, uh, first to you, uh, why do you believe that there is standing to challenge uh, President Trump's uh, hotels as a violation of the Emoluments Clause? And why do you believe that he is receiving emoluments that violates the clause and the clause applies to him? 
I just briefly, I, yeah, I'll, I'll say what I um, said before on standing, but I'll, I'll add, you know, I, I think uh, I, I appreciated what uh, Professor Blackman said at the end, that surely someone has to have standing. Where he said he uh, agreed that one of these parties, or at least one of these parties, would have to have standing. And I think that's the way to make the best sense of standing law. Um, standing law should not be a bar to anyone ever suing to enforce constitutional provisions. I think the best reason to have standing law is to make sure that the parties with the most uh, at stake and parties with uh, able to litigate a case are able to do so with the right arguments and the right um, uh, and, and the right concerns. Um, and here, I actually think that all of the plaintiffs um, fill, fulfill that role. But certainly, um, uh, I uh, include uh, the competitor standing is a very strong case. Um, certainly, at the pleading stage, you don't have to show um, a direct any example of a direct injury. Uh, it can be general competition. So I think that's sufficient. But I want to take a big step back um, for this entire case, and, and I guess I want to pose a question to Ja, to Professor Blackman, because I, I, I keep I guess the question I keep going back to here is. What is his and Professor Tillman's theory of constitutional interpretation? Because when I look back at these clauses, there are textual arguments for you know, plain meaning, but also intra-textualism, reading all these clauses together to make sense. And that seems to be squarely in favor of the Foreign Emoluments Clause applying to the president and the Emoluments Clause um, being broadly read. I also think that original public meaning, what did the public um, understand, or, um, and what did the ratifiers say? Uh, for example, Edmund Randolph and George Mason, what did they say about it? Or the history that Governor Morris talked about, um, the, the, something called the Secrets Treaty of Dover, um, where uh, the French king Louis XIV was bribing two English kings. And the founders were really upset uh, about this history uh, when at the, um, in, in the convention, uh, that this was directly about um, bribing a king, the kings bribing kings. This would certainly be about king, um, kings bribing presidents as well. So uh, I would say that original public meaning is, is the main, is, is the most legitimate source of constitutional interpretation. It's hard for me to square that with the arguments um, that Professor Blackman and Tillman has presented here of a much more esoteric, hidden meaning um, that it is not supported by the, uh, any direct historical evidence. Um, and so relying on Washington and this auction, um, it wasn't in plain view. Um, it was an auction, but it, it was out in the open, but it wasn't publicized. It was in front of only something like two dozen people. That hardly comports with a theory of constitution about original public meaning. This was Washington probably making a mistake. You know, maybe it was good faith of not, uh, not maybe understanding that emoluments was broad enough to uh, to cover um, a land deal. So uh, it just raises a lot of questions about what their theory of constitutional interpretation is um, in, as they make these arguments. Thanks so much for that, Josh. Last word to you. Lots to say, but uh, it's, it's a closing argument. Why do you believe that the Emoluments Clause does not apply to President Trump and that the suit should be dismissed? So you have no idea how happy I am that we're even talking about this now. Um, I've known Seth Barrett Tillman for years, and I've been reading his stuff for a long time. And he persuaded me some years ago that his theory accounts for many aspects of the Constitution that otherwise don't make sense. So there was a paper by Akhil Amar, a professor at Yale, uh, published 20 years ago. And what Akhil said is this, that when the Constitution uses the phrase offices under the United States, offices of the United States, that language is interchangeable, right? These are synonyms. It doesn't matter. And that strikes me as profoundly wrong, right? The language that framers use, and they use it consistently, we have to presume that differences in language mean different things. When the framers use the phrase officers of the United States, 
they mean something different. When they use office under the United States, they mean something differently. And I want to talk about a very early controversy in our republic that addressed this. Can members of Congress be impeached? Right? The House actually voted on articles of impeachment for a senator named Blunt, a guy from North Carolina. I'm sorry, Tennessee. Right, from North Carolina became Tennessee. Right, so it was a guy from Tennessee. The Senate did not convict him, and what they actually did is somewhat up for debate. But the key language there is officers of the United States. Officers of the United States can be subject to the impeachment process. Is a senator an officer of the United States? And even in our early days of Republic, there was debate about this, right? Some people thought a senator was an officer of the United States, and some people thought he wasn't. And the position that prevailed was that senators cannot be impeached. So let's go back to George Mason and Edmund Randolph, who Jed mentioned a few times. Mason and Randolph also believed that senators could be impeached. Now, their view on officer was rejected by the founding generation in the Blunt case. Their view was rejected. We've always conceded that there are two streams of authority. Under one stream of authority, the president and all federal officers are officers under the United States. But the better stream of authority, supported by practices from Washington, Madison, Jefferson, Hamilton, supported by British drafting practices, supporting by language used in the Constitutional Convention, in the, in, the, in, the, in the Continental Congress, right? Under any sphere of originalism, when you have this text, you have different pieces of evidence to cite. And we humbly submit that the preponderance, the, the, the weight of the evidence, once you get past Mason and Randolph, they got nothing. They have zero. And as the record stands right now, in light of the government's recent submission, there is not an iota of evidence in the proof case to support the plaintiff's claim that the president holds such an office. So if the court reaches the merits and finds that the case is justiciable, the plaintiffs and their Miki have not filed a sentence. There was a sentence withdrawn. have not filed a sentence rebutting Seth and my evidence. Uh, uh, so I think at this point, um, if the court reaches the merits, count one of the complaint about the Farnham Islands fault will be dismissed. Thank you so much, Josh Blackman and Jed Sugarman, for a substantive, illuminating, and educational discussion of this extremely interesting case. You've convinced us that there's much more to learn, and I hope that our listeners will read Josh and Jed's uh, blogs, read the briefs, and decide for yourself. Josh, Jed, thank you so much for joining. Thank you. Great. Thank you so much. Today's show was engineered by David Stotts and produced by Ugana Etze and Scott Bomboy. Research was provided by Lana Ulrich and Ugana Etze. Continue today's conversation on Facebook and Twitter using at ConstitutionCTR. Sign up to receive Constitution Weekly. That's the great email roundup of constitutional news and debate, which you can find in bit.ly forward slash Constitution Weekly. The Constitution Center is offering CLE, Continuing Legal Education Credits, for Select America's Town Hall Programs, a thrilling and quite painless way to receive continuing legal education credit for lawyers who need it. You basically you get to learn from our wonderful programs and get credit at the same time. Visit our website and click on Debate for more information and stay tuned for on-demand courses. And finally, despite our inspiring congressional charter, the National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. We receive little government support. We rely on the engagement, passion, and love of lifelong learning of all of you great We the People listeners and of people across America and around the world. So please join the Constitution Center to signify your membership in this community of learners. Visit constitutioncenter.org to learn more. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen.